Welcome to Eminent Americans, a podcast about the contemporary American intellectual scene. I'm your host, Daniel Oppenheimer, self-anointed intellectual historian of the present. My guest on the show today is Cedric Johnson, professor of political science and black studies at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and the author most recently of the book, After Black Lives Matter, Policing and Anti-Capitalist Struggle. So Cedric, welcome to the show. Good to have you. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure. Uh, so I asked Cedric on to talk about two things. I think in a sense, they're one thing that were at least very continuous with each other. So the first is Ta-Nehisi Coates, arguably the most important American public intellectual of the last few decades. And the second is Cedric's recent book, After Black Lives Matter, and its critique from the Marxist left of both Black Lives Matter and the broader anti-racist liberalism of which, according to Cedric's analysis, it's a manifestation. Coates doesn't play a role in the new book, but he is, I think, the figure, or at least a figure at the, at the center of the kind of ongoing race versus class intra-left debate in which Cedric continues to intervene. So here's how Cedric describes it in his 2016 piece for Jacobin Magazine, which was titled, An Open Letter to ta Coates and the Liberals Who Love Him. So Cedric writes, ultimately Coates's views about class and race and this nation's complex and tortured historical development are well-meaning and at times poetic, but wrong-headed. The reparations argument is rooted in black nationalist politics, which, which traditionally elides class and neglects the way that race-first politics are often the means for advancing discrete bourgeois class interests. Most of all, Coates is wrong about how we have achieved black political and social progress in the past and what we should do going forward. From the antebellum anti-slavery struggles to the post-war Southern desegregation campaigns, to contemporary battles against austerity, interracialism and popular social struggle have been central to improving the civic and material circumstances of African-Americans. And at the level of daily life, such movements have confronted racist habits and perceptions, sweeping aside old boundaries to create new notions of communion and solidarity. So that's kind of the background to this talk. Cedric Johnson, my guest, is professor of Black Studies and Political Science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He's the author of, among other books, The Panthers Can't Save Us Now, Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, Black Power in the Making of African-American Politics, and as I mentioned before, this year's After Black Lives Matter. His writings have appeared in Labor Studies, Catalyst, Dissent, Non-Site, Jacobin, New Labor Forum, Perspectives on Politics, and Historical Materialism. And just to make sure I get in all of your um, labor cred Cedric, I want to mention that you were named the John Garlock Labor Educator of the Year by the Rochester Central Labor, Labor Council, AFL-CIO, and you are a member of the UIC United Faculty Local 6456. Mm -hmm. So I have minor labor cred, but it is not the equal of yours. So I do want to get deep into your book and your own background, uh, but I wanted to start with Coates and a little bit before we get into the critique of Coates. I wanted to start with where you first encountered him as a reader. So I only became aware of him in 2008 when his memoir came out and he started blogging and then pretty quickly was elevated to post as a kind of writer and blogger for The Atlantic. But you actually encountered him a few years before that. So can you kind of give me your backstory of your engagement with him and kind of what your first impressions were? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, you know, I lived in the Washington, D.C. metro area a good part of the 90s. I mean, I literally was there pretty much for the duration of the Clinton administration, not because of Clinton, but that's the time period I was there. And one of the things that I really cherished about being there was the first big metropolitan area I lived in was the Washington City paper, which was sort of like a, a version of Village Voice kind of entertainment weekly, but with some political content. 
you know, they published both in Baltimore, but also in Washington using different reporters and sometimes the same articles in both places. And so I first came across Coates along with people like Jelani Cobb, who also wrote for the, the city paper. Oh, um, I didn't Both realize. of them, of course. Yeah. yeah. Both of them had been students at, at uh, Howard University. So I think that might've been the connection there. Uh, another older writer, Janetta Rose Barris, had written some pretty critical pieces on black leadership. And so I'd been in contact with her even as I was a graduate student. So I first remember reading him there. And one of the pieces that stands out for me was a criticism that he offered of, and I don't think this was in the city paper, but it was around the same time, probably around 2004, 2005, when he responded to Bill Cosby, right? This was Bill Cosby's speech to the NAACP on the 50th anniversary of the Brown decision. Just that the pound cake, the pound cake speech? Pound cake speech, right? And I think Coates bears some responsibility for us calling it that. Uh-huh. Because he, he wrote at the time one of the most courageous and I thought on-point criticisms of Cosby. And this was before we knew fully that Cosby was the yeah. uh, you know serial predator that we, we know now. So just in terms of taking on his underclass moralizing, I was a champion of Coates at, at that particular moment. And um didn't really have any major objections to his his writing. I think when I read the piece on reparations, I remember reading it. And, you know, taking really copious notes on it and tucking them away and not thinking about writing anything. Yeah. And then when he tried to intervene in the election, it just, you know, for a variety of reasons, it struck me as the wrong argument at the wrong time. And, and I felt compelled to respond to it. So I'm curious, you know, for you, so my memory of reading Coates in... 2008, 2009 was, he struck me. And of course, I wasn't coming from academia, but but Coates struck me as a pretty novel voice. But I'm curious if he struck you in that way or if he just struck you as, you know, an interesting young writer who was doing some interesting stuff, but not sort of fundamentally distinct either from people who were his contemporaries or people who came before him. I mean, my narrative in my head is basically like, it had been a pretty fallow period in the sense of like a big black writer making a mark on the scene. It seemed like we were sort of stuck in some holding patterns in terms of either the ways that things were being framed around race or maybe just the people who were talking about it who had a national profile. And, and he struck me as maybe the first in a long time who really stood out as like a new voice on the scene, whatever that means. At, at a minimum, it means somebody who is elevated up in terms of visibility. I mean, is that how you struck him or or, or did you just have a different kind of lens on what the, the scene was in terms of discussion around race and who the Black writers were? I mean, I think I had a slightly different take on it. So on the one side, I'm somebody who came up around uh, a number of people in graduate school and even as an undergrad, you know, older generation of Black writers who are more connected to 60s social struggles. And those persons were still around. I think at the time I was still more deferential to what they had to say. Yeah. Uh, somebody who was still trying to cut his teeth as an academic. The way I saw Coates was being more so somebody who represented my generation of sorts. And really someone who was riding a wave of changes that were taking place after Hurricane Katrina, after the election of Barack Obama, where there is new spaces that are opening up for Black public intellectual 
discourse, right? I mean, if you remember, there's a whole migration of people into MSNBC and a number of folks who are like Obama White House friendly, who were really hammering away at this idea that race still is a powerful axis of conflict within American life, especially at a time when so many people are trying to explain away the, the importance of race given the election of Barack Obama, right? And so yeah. I, I see, I saw him more as a creature of that time, right? Even though I knew of him in pre-existing times, his star seemed to really rise along with the, the denials of racism that we got when Obama was, was elected, but then also the very palpable reality of, of racial inequality, given what we all witnessed during the Katrina crisis, what we all witnessed during the subprime mortgage crisis. And I really think even his reparations arguments are more about the loss of Black uh, relative wealth during the subprime crisis than they are about anything else that happened during Jim Crow or slavery, right? They really are, are propelled by those losses and what they mean for contemporary Black folks in so many ways. That's interesting. If I remember, I'll go back to that because I hadn't thought of it in that line. I don't remember whether he makes that explicit in the article or it's more just, you know, what was happening at, at the time. I guess one thing mm -hmm. I want to sort of pause on that you said that struck me is, it sounds like your narrative accords with this is like, it's almost hard to remember now, kind of 15 years on from the election of Obama, which I think did create much more space for Black public intellectuals in the discourse, like how few there were before, frankly, 2008. Like if you're looking at the, like the masthead of, you know, the New Yorker and the Atlantic and New Republic and like, you know, the op-ed page in the New York Times and the New York Times Magazine and all these things, like, I think there's no comparison between pre-2008 and post-2008, I don't know if it's quite right to say it's night or day, but my memory is it's just like, you could almost count the sort of prominent national level black public intellectuals on one hand up until a certain point. And then there was a real kind of explosion of folks after, after 2008. There's always these moments of renewed integration, right? That's one way to think about it, where these spaces open up and can just as easily contract, right? I mean, I think even during the Clinton years, you had Black media presence, Black anchor persons making headways across the country, different news networks, local stations, Black journalists who were progressing. And really, we owe to that period the, the rise of Black public intellectual, right? It's more so in that time of the Bell Hookses and Cornell West and these figures mm -hmm. you know, coming on the heels of Reagan uh, Bushism that we see, the public intellectual phenomenon that people like Adolf Reed so brilliantly criticized as a phenomenon. And I mean, the, the group that's, that we see now, you know, deserves its own criticism in so many ways, right? Because I think unlike some of those earlier figures who Adolf criticizes for uh, embracing or advancing this sort of moralistic view of the Black poor, I think there's a deeper commitment of this more recent generation to, to markets and to simply removing racism from the kind of capitalist economy that we have right now, not criticizing the ways that maybe a, a Cornell West has been doing for decades, right? So to his credit, yeah. he's been a pretty consistent critic of that. But I don't hear that from some of these latter-day people who've become very popular, whether it's Ibram X. Kendi or Coates or uh, Melissa Harris Perry. Mm. These folks are not of the same social democratic or, or critical left position as somebody like Wes. 
I'm going to try and resist the temptation to go down the Ibram X. Kendi rabbit hole, getting all the stuff that's been having. I probably failed to resist the temptation, but I've, um, you know, so I want to go back to this 2016 piece you wrote. Coates had been certainly somebody you were aware of, you were reading, but not necessarily somebody you thought about deeply, or at least not sort of subjected to a kind of, you know, systemic critique. And then, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, 2016, I think this is during the primaries, and it's the, this contested primary between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. You're very much mm-hmm. a Sanders guy. I think Coates actually ended up saying he voted for Sanders, but the, the prompt for your essay was somebody asked Sanders about the idea of reparations, and Sanders said something uh, not quite dismissive, maybe a little bit dismissive, but that's a political non-starter, and mm-hmm. I think what we need to do is just a kind of standard sort of social democratic approach to mm-hmm redistributing wealth and power and that sort of downstream of that will be helping black poor people, white poor people, working class people, and so on. Coates wrote something kind of criticizing Sanders for that. And then that prompted your essay. Is that right? Do I have that kind of chronology right? Yeah, absolutely. And we didn't know what Coates's position was or whether he was willing to endorse Sanders. That comes after a range of criticisms, not just mine, but other people who, who called him out. Yeah, you know, I just thought it was ill-timed. The reparations argument has been around for a long time. It was really popular during the 1960s among some segments of like Black Power radicals. You've got some organizations that have been consistently pushing for reparations for, for decades to really small crowds, small segments of the Black population. People like the late John Conyers, who for years introduced reparations legislation into Congress, or at least attempted to, so the idea's been around for a long time. I think what's interesting with, with Coates is that the version he presents us with, especially at that moment in the midst of the Sanders campaign, you know, just seemed to distract and to set the stage for an easy win by Clinton, right? And I'll admit, I was incredibly inspired by Sanders both times he ran. And for me, it was, it was unique, right? It was a major turning point. It was something I hadn't witnessed uh, up to that point at the national stage. I mean, I was alive during the Jesse Jackson campaigns as a teenager, but I think this felt different, right? This felt like much more in the way of momentum, much more in the sense of possibility that he actually could come close to garnering the nomination. And it just seemed to to bring in the question of reparation, which was already a marginal idea within Black political discourse, right? To bring it in to this campaign when he did, and I think it was like right before the South Carolina race, right? Uh, It just seemed poorly timed and also misguided in the sense that when he presents it, you would think from the tone of his essay that the vast majority of Black people see this as a priority, right? So if you look at many public opinion polls, yeah, many Black people will say that this was unjust, right? The history of slavery, Jim Crow segregation, that there is a debt that's owed to African-Americans, but are they willing to prioritize that in, in daily life? Do the vast majority of Black people in this country in 2016 or even now prioritize reparations over more affordable, if not universally free healthcare yep. or public transit, or all sorts of other things. There's all sorts of things that people want immediately, you know, student loan debt relief. Um, And I think the way he presented it, though, right, on this national stage, and in an eloquent way, 
gives you the impression that it was as important as, as he was you know, presenting us with. I mean, even issues that he raised, there's a good deal in that, that earlier piece on reparations where he talks about you know, discrimination against people here in Chicago through the, the, the uh, buying on contract you know, scheme. Yep. Um, like I said, so much of that has to do with the loss of Black wealth, which is very real. You yeah. know, I know I have family members, I have friends who are affected by the subprime mortgage crisis. That's legitimate, right? But that could also be ha- handled in other ways. It doesn't have to be handled through, through reparations and the poison the well. And he also engaged in a rewriting of the longer history of social democratic politics in this country in the sense that you would think after reading his essay that Black people haven't gained significantly from earlier projects like the New Deal or the Great Society and, and War on Poverty during the 1960s. And so I think, I think that was the part that struck me as, as wrong yeah. because it omits the really basic fact that millions of Black people switched to the Democratic Party because of what those earlier social democratic programs meant to them. They weren't perfect, but we do know now that, you know, Black GIs, even after World War II, right, Black GIs used the GI Bill at a higher rate than their white Southern counterparts, right? And so yeah, that I was sort of by thing that. You mentioned matters, that. you know, that matters. Yeah. I hear what you're saying about the timing of it, but I guess I would sort of almost take it away from that because this comes to some core philosophical political differences. People talk about race reductionism, class reductionism, but it, I think it's a mm. useful frame, like the more class first left and and the race first left. I mean, let me let me read something that's from that piece um, that you wrote. The reparations argument is rooted in black nationalist politics, which mm. traditionally elides class and neglects the way that race first politics are often the means for advancing discrete bourgeois class interests. And so it's not just that Coates's timing was off, it's that there's a fundamental political, philosophical, theoretical difference between your perspective and his. And I'm trying to mm. think about how to sort of, you know, advocate his. Um, this is not language that he uses. I was thinking, did you hear that debate recently between Coleman Hughes and Jamel Bowie that was any, did you listen to that? Nah, nah, I have a. I have limits on my, my tolerance for some of, <laughs> some of these discussions. Right? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I sure, I'm, I'm sure which of, the, which of the two of those guys you have less patience with, but on the kind of class first perspective on things and Bowie was on the race first and Bowie kept saying and re-saying, why do you think policies that don't take race into account can ameliorate problems that were caused by racism? And he said that over and over again. And, and I do yeah. think that there's some conviction like that at the core of Coates's perspective. But I, I think also, you know, as he articulates in his response to you, there's just that black poverty is different from white poverty. Black social ills are different from white social ills and policies that are designed to be universal. I think from his perspective, I assume you would say empirically, analytically, we'll just re- reproduce these sort of disparities and inequities. Is that how you see his perspective on why we can't just go with the kind of Sanders rising social democratic tide lifts all boats perspective? That's a perfect uh, summation of what he thinks. And I think what Jamel Bowie and so many other folks think as well, it rests on a misrepresentation of the actual impacts that 
Executive Order 8802 had on black employment during the war, right? During World War II, right? It actually put money in black people's pockets. It gave people a chance to work within industries they had been denied from previously. It denies so many aspects of black history and what led to real concrete progress for black people across the country. And it has, we have to suppress that in order to make this demand for reparations or you know, racial justice first in the current moment. It's funny that you mentioned that I mentioned in my piece and then Coates repeats it and kind of insists on it, right? So I said, you know, Coates seems to think that black poverty is different from white poverty, right? And he responds in his piece in response to mine by saying exactly that. Well, it is different, right? That's actually a passage that's taken from a speech that Lyndon B. Johnson gave in the buildup to passing the 1964 Economic Opportunity Act, uh, which launches the war on poverty. And what Coates misses, I think it shows you the, 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 the gaps in his own perspective on the period. Great society liberals actually, they tried to treat Black poverty as though it was different, right? And they did that as a way of catering to the reluctance of Republicans to support legislation that they were trying to pass, right? They sort of softened their position when it came to what were the main motors of Black inequality at that particular time in an effort to try to garner Republican support, right? And so there's no focus on unions and mm -hmm. unionization of Black workers in, in the uh, war on poverty legislation, right? It doesn't really focus on some of the very things that had helped whites in an earlier period and some Blacks. And people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan instead focus on the alleged cultural traits of the Black poor that keep them in poverty. The matriarchal um, family, the weakness. Exactly, the, yep. right, exactly. They focus on those things and also on pro-market solutions, right? And so we get Head Start, and I'm not against Head Start. I was actually a Head Start kid, right? So Head Start, instead of more aggressive interventions in labor markets and other things that might help to improve conditions for working-class Blacks, it's just interesting that that's where he goes with it, right? He insists on a position that was itself a departure from a real emphasis on the universal problems that Black people were facing in concert with whites across the country. The other thing I would say about the, the race first left or, or class first left, I, I like the way that my good friend uh, Adolph Reed said recently, it's not race first or, or class first, it's capitalism first in yeah. terms of interpretation and where the interventions need to happen, right? And what should be the basis of the politics. So I think that's that's also somewhere where I disagree with Bowie and Coates and all the rest. I mean, I, I sincerely believe that so many of the problems we face, not just in terms of the kind of material inequality that they're, they're concerned about, but across the board, whether we're talking about uh, the built environment in cities, the state of the planet in terms of uh, ecology, that these can all be, you know, brought back to some of the problems of capitalism and the, the damage is done, not just to our lives, but to, to the world that we inhabit. So one of the things that I think I've always long struggled with with Marxism is understanding how these ideas of those sort of class interests are, are kind of embodied in people or kind of manifest concretely and, and maybe particularly psychologically. And, and what I mean by that is, so you've talked a lot, I mean, not just in that open letter 
about coach to white liberals, but I think that your piece, The Panthers Can't Save Us, and, and in After Black Lives Matter, and you talk about a lot of these politics of what you call liberal anti-racism as manifestations of the sort of class interests of whether it's bourgeois class interests or petty bourgeois class interests. And I do think I understand what that means at the theoretical level where I sort of have difficulty processing is like, what does that actually mean with somebody like Tanasi Coates or Jamel Bowie or Jelani Cobb or, or Melissa Harris Perry mm-hmm. or a whole fairly large at this point cohort of very high profile black intellectuals or liberal anti-racist intellectuals, Ibram Kendi, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who, who broadly speaking share a politics, giving those people the benefit of the doubt, like they're earnest in their beliefs, right? Coates is mm. earnest in his beliefs. When you're talking about that being a manifestation of a cert- certain kinds of class interests, what does that mean? How do you understand that? To go back to this idea of capitalism first, to the extent that the arguments they're making focus on racial inequality and are oftentimes actively against any mention of different conditions among Black people or the possibility of similar conditions among Black people and Chicanos and whites and other people around the country. That's where I see it as advancing much more of a bourgeois politics, which is in concert with the society as it exists and not necessarily trying to, to upset or change, you know, the predicament. Here's, here's a couple of tangible examples, right? Um, one that might sound mean to some people's ears, but so be it. And one that's more abstract, but probably pretty familiar. I'll start with that one first. You know, think about the power of, of Tulsa, right? The idea about the Tulsa, which is one, another response that I get from Coates. I think he used the image from Tulsa, like buildings on fire yep. as the cover to his essay in response to mine. And the way he presents it and the way some people read it was this was a mic drop. What do you mean? Universalism. Here's Tulsa, right? And, and look at what happened when Black people were trying to just do something as simple as run a commercial district. What gets me about the Tulsa example, and I need, I need to be clear, it's not that I have any ill will or any amnesia or lack of understanding about how horrific that was as a moment within African-American history and with long-ranging consequences for uh, people in Oklahoma and and elsewhere. But there were many Black towns and communities that were destroyed through uh, racist pogroms, right? It wasn't just Tulsa, right? Why is Tulsa the one that we choose to focus on? And my sense of it is that Tulsa represents the kind of black wealth creation or a paradise loss in terms of black wealth creation that is so resonant in the period of Obama's ascendancy to the presidency and that period of of black loss of wealth that comes after the subprime mortgage crisis, right? And so it's it's central and it's also very much something that many of these same characters you're talking about can get behind, right? It's not something that upsets their position within the hierarchies of this country, right? So I think Tulsa is the perfect example. I actually grew up in a a town called Opelousas, Louisiana, where we had uh, one of the largest and most violent, I'm going to call it a race riot, but, you know, vigilante violence against Blacks. You know, in the the 1868 voting rights massacre, which took place in St. Landry Parish, right? And it's a much longer backstory, but 
that incident is never on the lips of some of these contemporary folks, right? Because most of the people who were killed in that case were hired hands and sharecroppers and people who were not business persons who ran a vibrant commercial district that we might celebrate and hope to emulate in, in our own times. And so that's one way that I, I see their politics as being very much a bourgeois politics. It's centered on advancing yeah. for Black people the very same, uh, you know, paths to wealth creation that we see for others at the expense of thinking of other kinds of, of, of issues and concerns of working class Blacks. The other thing, too, and I say this as somebody who is proud and defiantly um, a faculty member at a public university, very few of these people you're talking about are people who are struggling, right? Most of them are people who are wealthy, not just by Black people's standards, but by American standards, by white people's standards, right? <laughs> so, um, so I think that's another thing that I think we have to be clear about, right? There's, there's wealth to be made yeah. um, in making this argument that calls America to task for its history of racial oppression, calls America to task for persistent inequalities when it comes to college admissions or the extent of Black homeownership, but is virtually silent on so many other issues that directly affect working class black people and working class people in the country overall, because that's not where, that's not where the, the big grants are, right? That's not where the foundation money is rolling in, right? It's not coming in to, to, to advance social democratic politics. It's much more available to do things that help to perfect and deflect those kinds of criticisms, perfect the system and deflect the criticisms that might upset it. You know, one thing occurred to me as you were talking, because I, I don't know the background of a lot of these folks, but but Coates, I do, just read his memoir, read his stuff, you know, so he's not coming out of any kind of recognizably bourgeois background. He comes out from very sort of working class background. His dad, I think, what worked maybe, did he work at Howard, like in, in the library or something, worked as kind of a clerk at Howard, and then he also ran this kind of small independent black press. So he's not mm. coming out of a kind of bourgeois background in the sense that I am. What he is coming out of is a black nationalist background where there was a big emphasis mm. on sort of self-sufficiency and entrepreneurship. Right, sure. Like that. And then I think about, well, so you're talking about wealth creation, this sort of you know, nostalgic or sentimental notion of black wealth and black wealth creation is not just the ideology of the bourgeois. I mean, it's the ideology of America in some basic sense. Mm. And I do wonder if you can sort of, without ascribing any kind of opportunism to some of these folks, like it was probably the ideology in which they were raised, whether they grew up as the kids of, you know, upper middle-class professionals or working class folks mm -hmm. or, or poor folks. I mean, it's the ideology of hip hop music. And, uh, of course, yeah, you know, and all of those things. And, and sometimes I just, it's almost like there's just a path dependency question, which is also mm -hmm. what is the sort of intellectual public intellectual world into which they come with its set of incentives and disincentives. And there are class reasons for that. There's not a big opening. There's not a big lane for the Marxist intellectual, right? Your buddy Adolf Reed, sometimes he'll get covered in the New York times, and the New Yorker, but he's not publishing in the New York times, the New Yorker by right. and large. You're not publishing for the most part in those places. Mm -hmm. That's the world into which one comes. 
And you don't have to be a naked opportunist to just respond to the incentives that are presented to you as a, you know, as a professional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say two things in response to that, right? I grew up in the same culture they did, right? I grew up in, in a majority black context, historically black college as the, as my undergrad. And I was around all the same forces, right? All the same ideas, especially during the 1980s and, and early 90s, right? Where, you know, the primary way of thinking about how people should respond to the carceral expansion and, and the crack cocaine crisis was not only just to refrain from drugs or to discourage drug use or to stay out of a life of crime, but it was to pursue the very kinds of self-sufficiency and, and entrepreneurship that you mentioned. So I came up in the same context, but where's the intellectual work that people can grow up in that context and then also realize at some point that that's never as a strategy, change the predicament for the vast majority of Black people, right? Mm -hmm. That entrepreneurship during the 1920s created parallel economies for various urban Black contexts. It, it created uh, wealth, nominal wealth for certain individuals or groups. Same is true in the 1960s, again in the 80s. Whatever period you pick, uh, it's always present, but it never really changes the situation for the vast majority of, of Black people. And so even though they came up in the same context, where was the critical faculty to step back and say it hasn't worked? As far as my own experience goes, the, the blessing of not growing up in Detroit or Chicago or some of these other places where Black entrepreneurship reigns, right? But to be in a, much, in a relatively uh, much poorer part of the, of the country, and one where Black people's lives in South Louisiana uh, are still dominated, like most Louisianans, by the petrochemical companies, right? That tends to dominate the economy. And so there's a way that, you know, you grew up in Louisiana closer to the very real, you know, and, 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 and unadorned power of capital yeah. that you don't see in some of the bigger metropolitan areas. Even in Louisiana, right, late 80s, you had biologists and other professors at Southern University where I was a student who were talking about the impact, you know, the ecological impact, the medical impacts of petrochemical companies on people living in surrounding areas, right? Yeah. Folks already doing zip code studies. And so for me to see that, it was like, okay, well, the problem isn't just white racism in some broad trans-historical sense, but there's very real forces in the society that are arrayed against anybody who lives close to these plants. And anybody who tries to defeat, you know, to try to contest this will be defeated by these companies, right? So having witnessed that in the state legislature, people who tried to get restrictions placed on uh, some of the stuff that was happening. Um, so I think, I don't know. So again, not to let them off the hook. Yeah. They lived through the same period. Black nationalism was one path, and surely, I mean, at the end of the Cold War, it's not like socialism was, was a ready-made path. But, you know, as we've seen over the last few decades, I mean, there, there are certain segments of the population that are awakening and warming up to, uh, you know, social democratic ideas, right? Um, well, I so want to yes. get to, yeah, I did want to understand you wrote about kind of what happened to black power politics? And you and, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to get this just exactly right, but I think the argument you made is that like the black power politics of folks like 
what is it like Panther, the Panthers and Snick and Stokely Carmichael and kind of evolved in, in, in maybe non-obvious ways in retrospect into basically old school ethnic party politics, urban machine politics, uh, patronage politics. Did I get mm-hmm. that right? And I like, I'm not sure that was a particular argument that I had seen before, but I was intrigued by it because I still think there, there's a way in which the influence of black power, black nationalism, though it's been talked about a lot, has actually not even been fully reckoned with sort of in a contemporary sense. What's your story of the ways in which black power ideology and politics evolved into into, I guess, kind of neoliberalism, some mix of neoliberalism and just old school ethnic patronage politics? I would probably break it down into two two, uh, periods. I mean, I see the notion of black power, it's sort of like Black Lives Matter, it starts as a slogan and then it materializes in different ways. Um, To their credit, the Black Panther Party and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers and a few other formations like the Third World Women's Alliance think about Black power in internationalist terms. They think about it in socialist terms. And so there is like a, a left of the Black power, period. But in terms of the mainstream ideas, I mean, when Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton write their book in 60, or published their book in 67, you know, they draw as much from mainstream American political science and notions of ethnic group incorporation than anything else, right? So there's a clear sense that this is presented in a militant language, Mm -hmm. um, given the backdrop of the times, but the ideas are really old. There's a passage where they say directly that, you know, if you can elect a Black person to be sheriff, Black people will be treated better by uh, sheriff's deputies. If you can, you know, bring in a Black person as tax assessor, you you can expect to get more fair treatment in terms of taxation, because in many places you had Black majorities or black pluralities, but still white control or white power, right? Right. In a concrete sense, right, uh, the 60s civil rights legislation creates the possibility for black people to pursue that formula of ethnic incorporation, right? To the point that by the time we get to the 80s, I mean, every American city, you know, with a sizable black population has elected a black mayor, if not uh, also a black majority city council. And that's a remarkable period, right? So when I talk about it, both in the the writings, but also, you know, in public, I mean, I see it as a period of progress, like significant progress for African-Americans. I mean, during the same period, Black poverty is greatly reduced down to like one-fourth of the population when it had been a majority back during the time of the Brown decision. And so it's an important victory for, for Black people. You know, this period from like the late 60s up through probably the early 90s, a period of kind of like Black political control of, of urban America. Yeah. And there are many other gains that we see during that period. But it's also one that's, you know, like most historical moments filled with all sorts of contradictions. And so many people came to power in this period. They come to power in cities that are deindustrializing. Um, losing manufacturing jobs. They're watching the the uh, population drain in terms of suburban movement. And also, they're entering into the problem of you know, various fiscal problems, right? As the federal government cuts the tap on support for cities and as the tax base erodes, right, because of all those other uh, migrations, you know, of, of capital and, and people. So 
um, black people or black mayors in the 60s and 70s and 80s really encounter a city that is is uh, ungovernable. Yeah. You know, it's difficult for them to meet the demands of their electoral constituency and at the same time garner the kind of investment that they can point to as success, right? So it's just, this, it's almost an unwinnable situation, but not for everybody, right? Like we mentioned Tom right. Bradley earlier off air, and I think Bradley, a few other people were able to, to, to thread the needle, you know, Maynard Jackson and others. But by and large, I mean, what this gives rise to, you know, you mentioned neoliberalism, I would say a second period from 1992 onwards, where there's a generation of Black uh, mayors that comes along who don't have those ties to civil rights activism or trade unionism. They're not like Coleman Young or uh, Tom Bradley. And instead they're like much younger. They encounter a city that's now changing in a different direction where there's resettlement, there's this revanchism or retaking of the city. Uh, mm -hmm. um, gentrification is the buzzword. Um, and I think that alters what they attempt to do. And some of them come from a very different background. I mean, they're more like the public intellectuals that you mentioned earlier, right? They're like Ivy League pedigreed. Um, they're people who have access to different kinds of institutions, yeah. support from foundations. Um, and some ideologically- of are, Some of them are just suits, right? I mean, some of them are just yeah, pure, poli pure politicians, just machine, I mean, without the Ivy League pedigree, just just machine politicians, like they came up through the system and it was their turn or something like that. Right, right. You know, and you've got like rising stars and people who, again, from the very beginning of their career, embraced the logic of neoliberalization as the only way to go. And so people like Adrian Fenty in DC, who's, right. you know, on board with school privatization from the jump, Cory Booker, all sorts of other people. I mean, it's, there's a whole host of them, all of them like around, I guess, our age, right? Yeah. <laughs> who, uh, yeah. <laughs> So I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is one mm -hmm. of these places. I mean, when people think about the deindustrialization, they're often thinking about the Midwest. But actually, that Rust Belt kind of extends into, you know, into, oh, New, yeah. into New England, mm -hmm. you know, Massachusetts, where I grew up. Springfield, thriving industrial city up to about the 50s or 60s. And then the same story that you're seeing all across that sort of, sort of whole band, which is first the factories go down south and then they leave the south and they go overseas, right. just like... And the cities are just totally hollow. They're just eviscerated. And Springfield was not the case that it was not a majority or plurality black city. So it didn't end up with a black mayor, but it did end up with like the, the Puerto Ricans got their city council member and the blacks got their city council member right. and the Irish and the Italians. So the, but it was like this shrinking pie, right? It's in this context mm -hmm. of austerity and where the, the bounds of possibility are incredibly limited. And within that, one of the things, or this is how I understand, one of the things that I think politicians unwisely but understandably end up doing is reaching for these sort of these shiny, like big development projects, right? These these home mm -hmm. runs or something like that. It's always the joke. And when I was growing up at Springfield, we were always redeveloping the waterfront. So we're always oh, redeveloping yeah. the waterfront and or we were going to build a you know minor league baseball stadium. I mean, you can run down the, there's the new conference center. You can run down the list, the mm -hmm. skyscrapers of like these big glittering development projects that bring in a lot of money for certain constituencies, but do almost nothing. And, and, and maybe in the long run, even the opposite, maybe even contribute to the deterioration mm -hmm. of these cities and to the detriment of the working class people. But what was on offer was not much, right? There wasn't like money to be spent. I mean, that's a sympathetic right. rendering of it in a sense. I guess one question I have, you know, and this goes to your book to after Black Lives Matter is like, now you're sort of 
in a sense, I think identifying this subsequent cohort of people who are sort of the next iteration of that. So are not such sort of pure self-avowed neoliberals. They're actually kind of liberal anti-racists, mm. I think. Would you put them in like the next iteration of that group of sort of liberal black leaders who reach for certain kinds of solutions that, that don't fundamentally threaten kind of the interests of capital? You mean uh, the elected leaders or... or uh... The public I intellectual. Think, I guess I'm thinking of more the public intellectuals and the activist leaders like, you know, the DeRay McKessons or the, the you know, Alicia Garza and Patrice Cullors and, and some of those folks. But actually, don't answer that because we're going to get to that. I want to go back <laughs> in time to you. So you, I think at some point said you went to college. You go to, where'd you, did you go to Southern? Where'd you go to? Southern University, yeah. Yeah. I think you were going to be a lawyer and then at some point as an undergrad, I don't know if that totally went out the window, but like, bring me back to the origins of your sort of intellectual history. As I assume somebody who at that point, up to that point was not like super political or at least not super sophisticated politically, and then sort of started encountering some ideas and people that set you on the path that you're on now. Well, no, actually, it, for me, it starts before Southern, right? So a huge part of my like political development as a, a teenager was growing up in uh, Holy Ghost Catholic Church, which was at the time, the largest um, black Catholic church in the country, right? So how big and is Vegas? Like, how big was it? So we apparently had 10,000 parishioners. Wow. Um, That's not showing up at church every week, but... not Maybe not every week, but there's a, there's, there is some physical evidence of it, right? There was a, a moment when the pastor commissioned a photographer to take pictures of all of the families in the, in the uh, congregation. And it's this big, almost like a tele old-fashioned telephone book of photographs. Um, and I, I, I'm more to find out who still has a copy of that, but I remember seeing it many times as a kid. It was a big deal. I mean, I actually can remember being in line, like waiting to get these pictures taken. And, you know, it's miserable to do that as a child, but it's yeah. an important historical document of this church. And um, the pastor at the time was a guy named Albert McKnight, who was Black. He had grown up in Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. And the way he told it was that his family was the first black family to move onto his block in Bed-Stuy, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't like this guy, like when I met him, right? He was, you know, I mean, one, I was a super shy kid, right? And so we, we all had to sit with him. We had an appointment if you were going to go up for a confirmation. And he turned it into like almost like a four-year process, right? which it should have been much shorter, but he used it as a way of helping us to understand all sorts of other things about adulthood outside of, you know, Catholicism. But this guy was radical, right? He came to Louisiana in the 60s. He formed worker co-ops or, or producer co-ops among Black farmers, mm. primarily those who were growing sweet potatoes. He also established cooperatives and newspapers and other things throughout South Louisiana. And he, he also helped to integrate the Catholic Church, right? Because up until that point, we had separate congregations. We also sat separately in, in services. There were separate schools. So in my hometown, my church was literally not even 100 meters from the larger, much more ornate white Catholic Church up on a hill. Hmm. And they shared a graveyard. They also had two separate schools. 
So the process of my, you know, sort of like right before uh, so the, the I was graveyard born, was integrated, but but not the church. Sort of, yeah, <laughs> sort of. But um, yeah. So slowly that that process begins to break down, right during the seventies and and eighties. But this guy came to town. He was a force. And like I said, I didn't like him when I met him because I was a kid and he was like a person who would make you speak up and like force you into an uncomfortable position. And I remember sitting with him one time. Uh, I must have been like 13 or 14. And he was one of the first adults I was around who wasn't my teacher or parent or family member who really challenged me to like be more than what I was. Right. And he really insisted that I take a more active role in things and call me out. And that's not what you want to hear as a teenager. But over the long haul, I came to love this guy, right? He was like a brilliant person, probably the most pious person I ever met, you know, in, in, in life. He was sort of somebody who really, you know, forced a lot of us. Like there's a whole generation of us uh, who, are, who are in that town who to this day, I mean, there's like all sorts of stories that people have of how he helped them to, you know, become more politically conscious. He was essentially a black nationalist, even though he supported this idea of like black cooperative yeah. economics. And it's because of him that my town goes from being one that was majority black, but still dominated by, by whites in terms of elected officials and the institutions in the town to one that's to this day still governed by by African-Americans. I mean, the fate of the town has drastically declined, right? Yeah, right. But there was a sweet spot where you still had some of the white investment. But that period of watching the city go from white control to like black politicization and, you know, the election of the first black mayor and chief of police and all these other positions, city council, that was like an education for me as a kid, right? That corresponded with my high school years. And so I watched that firsthand and also saw the limitations of it, because when you're up that close and personal to it all, you can see the limits of it, right? So on the one hand, you know, to this day, I'll still support Black businesses just out of uh, habit. And if somebody is selling things that I want, I'll, I'll support them. Yeah. But I also know that it's not a solution to yep. these other problems, because we had a lot of those things in my hometown, right? Black credit unions, Black restaurants, you know, we even had, I think at one point, a black Black-owned shoe store you know, newspapers, all sorts of things. But, you know, that couldn't, that couldn't change the, the uh, other problems that were lurking in terms of, of deindustrialization. We were never Springfield, Mass., or even, you know, Peoria, Illinois. Yeah. But a lot of the industries we had at the time, you know, various companies that were connected to producing pipes and other things for offshore oil, oil drilling, or like light manufacturing around food production and garment making, all of those things are pretty much gone now. Or yeah. they're so mechanized that they have very little impact in terms of employment. And so it was that that context. So the Southern Louisiana, um, which is where I spent all of my time until I left Louisiana for grad school, was really the place where I, I kind of got a keener sense of the limitations of this idea that black politics is sacrosanct, yeah. that people like Coates or whoever else can speak for the black population. There were just too many different interests operating within even a place like South Louisiana with Baton Rouge and Lafayette and New Orleans to think that any one person or any one organization can speak the voice of, of the black population. 
So I think that's where some of that critical understanding comes from. You well, know, it's interesting now. So in a different direction. So you were politicized in a sense very young, but the more obvious outcome would have been just reproducing the kind of belief structure that you were politicized in, you know, more of the one that we were talking about. I understand what you're right. saying that for you specifically, it brought you up to the point of kind of recognizing the limitations. Typically people just reproduce the ideology that they're cultivated in, whether, right. or not, you know, it presented right. evidence to them to the contrary. I'm assuming, so, so, so when do you start to put some kind of theoretical flesh on just maybe, I guess, what's that, that kind of intuition that there's limitations to this mm -hmm. perspective? I mentioned Rod Size, right? He was just here a few weeks ago. He's a guy I've been knowing since before I started school, right? His grandfather lived right next door to me. And we were in elementary school together. We were in college together, right? So I've known him like my whole life. He was somebody who was really politically active in college, right? So I attended meetings with him with folks who were trying to abolish the death penalty, right? Or at least fighting against death penalty cases within the state of Louisiana. And so he was somebody who helped me as far as introducing me to different, different readings. But I also had some great faculty at, at Southern, right? I had people like Gary Clark, who now, if we hear, he has a radio program that still runs in New Orleans. I feel like his positions are maybe more Black nationalists than the ones he gave us in the early 90s, right? He was pretty critical of me as somebody who's still holding on to some Black nationalist ideas. And I remember coming to his class once with uh, a shirt that I had from the Black Youth Conference, right? This was an event that we, we had at a Holy Ghost Church and every have... year that brought together kids from Texas, uh, Mississippi, all over Louisiana to like talk about issues and things we were facing. And he saw me with the shirt on that had the seven values of uh, Kwanzaa or okay. Kawaida, right? And, um, and like the the Pan African colors, like the the red, yeah. <laughs> yeah. red, black, and green. Yeah. yeah. And so he called me out about it when I walked in class and started quizzing me on what it meant and offering like a criticism of like black nationalist ideas. So he was that guy, right? Kind of yeah. confrontational and forced me to kind of think about these things more critically. But there were other people, right? We had a guy named uh, David Himbara, who was a uh, Kenyan. And Marxists, right? And so there were a few, there were a few Marxist professors on campus. But of course, it's like 1989, 1990. Nobody's running around in that context, South Louisiana, wearing those politics on their sleeve. But they, once you got into their classes, they did talk about specific things. Like they would assign, I think we had to read Bill Freud's Making of Contemporary Africa, which is like a Marxist account of uh, modern African history. And so things like that were really helpful for me because I hadn't been exposed to some of that work. I think I read the manifesto around, you know, I was like 17 years old. Uh -huh. And reading it in the context with people who weren't so doctrinaire, yeah. but also weren't like anti-communists, right? like wanted yeah. you to kind of talk about it and get an understanding of it. So the context of Southern University, I think was really important, you know, for me, um, as far as the introduction to an intellectual understanding of Marxism as, as a body of, of, uh, of thinking. So I'm curious, People like me, by which I mean just like podcasters who like to frame things in neat binaries, can draw a distinction between the Cedric Johnson camp and the Tanasi Coates camp in a variety of ways. But I don't want to sort of retrospectively 
imagine that there was more of a distinction between these two things between, you know, in the course of your life and your career than was necessarily the case. So really, I should ask it as a question. I imagine you encounter, you know, either some explicit or implicit sort of pushback from other Black intellectuals or Black academics or things like that. Was this a schism that was visible to you as you were going through academia, as you were in undergrad, as you were in grad school, as you're moving out and you're becoming on faculty, where these are kind of like rival camps or camps in tension? Or is that something that I'm kind of retroactively superimposing on what was really much a much more sort of un, not undifferentiated, but just like a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of people whose interests overlap or don't overlap at various points where there's greater or lesser tensions, but it's just, you know, it's academia, it's intellectual life. Do you experience so, it as you're on one side of a divine? I mean, not always, right? So I would say when I started out the period at Southern University, right, I was being made aware that there are these different camps. But at the same time, not really feeling the need to join one of them. I think I was like, you know, I had my ideas were all over the place, right? There were there was places where I, you know, I embraced more liberal kind of civil rights ideas out of practicality, because that was also part of the, the atmosphere I, I was in. There was moments when I would offer some criticism of the Persian Gulf War being connected to the oil economy and whatever else and get into this sort of uh, anti-capitalist frame of criticism. And then there were there was moments when I was, like everybody else in the early 90s, embracing of certain Black cultural nationalist ideas, right? I think, you know, as far as stages, I would say it's, it's doing grad school, it's living in the D.C. metro area, where I begin to sharpen those ideas. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. For me, one thing uh, that I don't really talk about, I've never written about it, but a uh, summer I spent in, uh, in Ghana, West Africa, was helpful for me to sharpen my criticisms of Black nationalist politics and really romantic Pan-Africanist ideas that I had been exposed to since a teenager. You know, the, the experience of being in West Africa, traveling, you know, not just the slave dungeons, but seeing gold mines, talking to people who were refugees of civil war in Liberia, going to a refugee camp, having conversations with people who were revolutionary socialists and who were living in in Ghana all helped me to kind of clarify what my thinking was and to really break free of certain racist, centralist ways of thinking about politics. And then that same year was the Million Man March. And as somebody who had seen Farrakhan speak multiple times, you know, had been a person who would pick up the final call every now and then and read some of their articles because it was like the thing that you did if you wanted to show that you were paying attention. That was a period where I was actually critical of the Nation of Islam and had reached a period of maturity or a point of maturity where I was openly willing to criticize the Million Man March for what you, it was. Did you go? So you were I in- did go. I yeah. did go. But I was critical of it, you know, in conversations with people. So I was still in this, this spot of, yeah. I don't agree with it. I think there's some problems here. We should be focused more on political demands. But I think I should still participate because I was living in D.C. Well, so it's been really say, weird like, to not. I was going to say, if, you know, if they announced in Austin tomorrow, the million <laughs> Jew march, like whatever I thought of the politics, <laughs> the founders, I would go. You don't not right. go, right? But if you're right there, you're going to go. Yeah. You know, and I had friends who came to town to go. And so it was just sort of like a social, you know, yeah, it was almost like right. a social uh, it impetus historic. for doing it. It was historic too, right? I mean, it's to be at a historic event. Yeah, but deeply uh, conservative politically, you know, with with the patriarchal dimensions of it. I don't agree with the ideas about black male atonement. I don't think that's really the reason why we have 
uh, so much crime and violence within cities. Some of it is maturation. I mean, Million Man March, I was maybe 20, I think I just turned 24 years old. Yeah. So, so, so you know, I was still trying to figure things out, right? It's kind of tough. It, it took a while to really hone in on exactly what my interpretation of Black life really was, what my interpretation or, or approach to thinking about American society was. So a lot of these events contributed to that. So to jump over about 20 years of your intellectual development, what's the backstory on this book on After Black Lives Matter? It kind of goes back to Louisiana, right? I mean, I grew up in Louisiana during the period of the carceral expansion. And for a long time, I mean, really up until recently, Louisiana led the country in, in having one of the worst, you know, prison systems as far as uh Isn't there that one, like, really notorious prison that there have been, like, documentaries in? Uh, Angola, yeah. yeah. Angola, that's right, yeah. Yeah, Angola's legendarily bad reputation. You guys, Louisiana, you guys win on all of those fronts. Like everything bad. Everything. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's funny it's a super charming state in all sorts of ways, but it's like everything, oh, yeah. you know, is like Louisiana is like you want your environmental racism or your environmental toxicity. You want your yeah, bad. You want bad. everything. It's just, it's Louisiana. Yeah. Um, it's, it's either Russell or Mississippi. You're like in a death match. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Who can be worse? Yeah. <laughs> But we, we edge out Mississippi, I think, when it comes to good times and, and food and other things, even though Mississippi can hold their own when it comes to music, right? Yeah, so you were, <laughs> you, sorry, I interrupted you. you were saying, so Black Lives Matter, Louisiana is kind of the leading yeah. you're number one in the expansion of the carceral state. Right, so we, that sort of where it starts. I mean, I've been thinking about these issues of policing and incarceration for a long time. You know, I've got a you know, three kids. My oldest is 25. He'll be 26 in a few months. And I remember being at the protest against the uh, killing of Amadou Diallo and, you know, brutal beating and, and rape of Abner Louima, right? We participated in those sorts of protests. He was a kid. I had him up on my shoulders. He might have been like a year old, you know, back then. And so it's not like these issues haven't been a part of what I've done. I also organized a, a year-long lecture series when I was at Hobart and William Smith on gender isolation and imprisonment, where we brought in speakers like Loic Waquant and Michael Dior Owens, Kalila Brown-Dean, Juanita Diaz-Coto, all these other people who have been doing work on the carceral state. And so, you know, this has been a part of me. I think what precipitates the, the book is that watching the, the emergence of Black Lives Matter participating in protests, going to vigils and other things, I felt that some of the analyses were going in the wrong direction, right? Again, sort of like with the presentation of reparations by Coates, I thought it misdiagnoses the problem, right? The very slogan, Black Lives Matter, gives you the impression that this is something that the vast majority of Black people are facing when it's actually not, right? And maybe more importantly, just like the denial of the history of social democratic left politics, this idea that this is a, a concern that Black people should be focused on and should, it should be foregrounded, you know, in terms of Black discussions, loses sight of how much of a, of a national issue it is, right? That even if we stop the uh, killing of Black people by police tomorrow, the U.S. would still outpace all other relatively wealthy nations when it comes to fatal conflicts with civilians. So 
it just seemed to be like one of those moments where the, the popular argument isn't necessarily the right one. Yeah. And where we're losing sight of how this is connected back to those broader problems of capitalism. And for me personally, it's like saying that it's a, it's a problem of racism, you know, it only gets us so far, right? And it, it also lets a lot of people off the hook, right? If we think that it's the problem of racist cops, we lose our sense of culpability in this problem, right? The carceral expansion was built up from the local level through local city councils and state legislatures, also with some support from the federal government. But I think that we have to think about the ways that we're all implicated in this, especially those of us who live in cities. Yeah. And as you said, right, there's these developments, you know, uh, regimes in cities that are totally dependent upon policing, right? So it's a very basic part of what happens, right? I mean, you mentioned your town of Springfield. Every city has these kind of like tourism zones yeah. that they're investing tremendous amounts of money in. And they're also spending a lot of time making sure that those aren't disrupted or troubled or threatened by crime or yeah. even the appearance of crime, right? <laughs> you know, undesirable behavior and activity. And so I think we have to think about that as well. You know, same thing with like gentrification or, or real estate development in cities. I mean, so much of our decisions about where we're going to live rest on the, the appearance of, of relative safety, right? I mean, how many people are trying to willingly move into a neighborhood where it either seems unkempt or it's a place where you don't feel particularly safe, right? Most of us are not going to do that. And so policing is a part of our lives, even when we're not paying attention to um, this sort of explicit workings. So I felt that was missing from so many of these conversations about viral police killings. And I just felt the need to, to intervene and offer some other other perspectives. You know, I'm interested just kind of in your visceral, visceral response. When this coalesced as a movement pretty quickly, my visceral response was just, was just a sinking in my stomach, was just like, this isn't going to make anywhere remotely the change that we need or we want. And I think my reasons for that, I will not project them onto you, were twofold. One was, I was looking at the people who were emerging as leaders and they didn't seem like, just viscerally, they didn't seem like serious people. They didn't seem like people who had been genuinely cultivated in the tradition of organizing and political work that I mm -hmm. think like doing political work is a skill like any other, right? And people, mm -hmm. and the people generally speaking who do it well are the ones who have a lot of experience of doing it and, and have been through battles before and understand how you win and what loss feels like. So the people who were emerging as the leaders didn't seem like serious people to me. The other thing that struck me was, it wasn't literally just the slogan, Black Lives Matter, but I think it was the choice very early on to hive off the experience that black people have at the hands of police from white people and every other people in America. Mm -hmm. Because I grew up relatively upper middle class in a city. I had run-ins with the police. My dad sued the police periodically because that was part of what he did as a lawyer. So I had other reasons to be skeptical of the police, but not only did you not need to be a black person to understand the kind of extraordinary violence that the police, just the extraordinary nature of the coercion that police can bring to bear, you mm -hmm. didn't need to be a poor person to know that, to right. have encounters with the police. I just didn't get it strategically. Why, why would you deliberately cut yourself off from potential sort of cooperation, collaboration, with other people who had the experience of, of coercion at the hands of the police. And it just all of the choices that were made almost from day one made me convinced that it wasn't going to amount to what it 
could have. But I mean, did you have a kind of visceral reaction to that or was it or was did you have a hopeful period with Black Lives Matter? I think I had the same emotional sense of it. I mean, the, the killing of Trayvon Martin, if we start there, we go back further in time to the killing of Oscar Grant years before. In Bolton's case, I mean, I was upset by it. I was outraged by it. My explanation of why it happens was different, right? And I think like you, I didn't really trust the, the sloganeering or the hashtagging because I already had my suspicions about that style of, of uh, mobilization. Not fully thought out, but just kind of like, ah, some reservations about this as a way to go. So there's that. I think also what kind of predates the coining of the hashtag is the the publication of, of Michelle Alexander's book, New Jim Crow, which again, prefigures Black Lives Matter and, and informs so much of it. And what's odd about that, I mean, if we kind of pull it all back together, going back to Louisiana and, and the earlier carceral expansion, like I said in the book, the way we responded to those problems back then was more like, okay, we need more discipline. We need million man march type sentiment. Black people yep. have to rein themselves in and Young people need to behave themselves and take responsibility for themselves and for their communities, right? There was this moralistic response. And to its credit, I mean, by the time the crack crisis subsides, many activists really begin to focus on the, not just the disparities, but like how this is all connected, right? So it's almost like we couldn't, we couldn't fully see it, yeah. 1988, 89, but by the late 90s, people already seen, okay, there's systematic discrimination against Black people when it comes to just things like routine traffic stops and stop and frisk is already in full force in New York City. I was actually a victim of that, <laughs> believe it or not. My, one of my, my first fucking trip to New York City, I got, I got stopped and harassed by some cops with a couple of friends of mine, and we get all the shoot citations. We would, you know, search, frisk, whatever else. Did they have to give a pretext? Did they have to say you did this wrong, or we're searching for this somebody who matches your description, or or were they were they just stopping people with with no pretext whatsoever? Yeah, with, with suspicion, right, of of behavior, right. We were like in a public park, and um, yeah, we were just hanging out. There were other people who were who were actually openly smoking cannabis right by us, like a group of like white skater kids who they didn't harass, right? So we could feel the discriminatory dimensions of it. But I think that's the shift that's happening, right? From like that moralistic sort of response that we had initially to then mid-90s, late-90s, this much more overt discussion of, of this as a bigger problem. And, and a systemic problem, right? Like a systemic yeah. 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 And, and I think, you know, for Alexander, right, she she also takes that title of her book and the, and the thesis from an uh, activist slogan, right? That had been an activist slogan. And when she when she first encounters it, she didn't agree with it. She thought that it was it wasn't true. And then after a while, she becomes convinced that it actually does capture a part of the reality. And so I think I think that part of part of the problem we're seeing and maybe go back to your initial, initial point about it is that Black activists were some of the first ones to really address this problem of carceral expansion. And they addressed it from the vantage point of previous civil rights struggles, right? That had been the frame. Yeah. It was like, let's focus on an early period of Jim Crow. After Jim Crow, these organizations are, are trying to figure out where, where their next battlefront will be. And the carceral expansion becomes the place for a lot of organizations and they proceed to frame it in a way that, like you said, excludes all sorts of other possibilities. 
And there's a great moment where Alexander refers to, you know, those white people who have been caught up in the, the war on drugs, dragnet as collateral damage, right? That the real victims are black people. And if whites are caught up in it, they're just simply um, the unfortunate victims, right? So the, so the side effects. And that's just not the case. It's not the case in places like Kentucky, where whites still yep. are the majority of people in, in jails and prisons and in other parts of the country as well. And so I just think it's well-meaning in the beginning, right? You've got civil rights activists who are concerned about their core constituency, Black people. Yep. So that's how they focus on it, right? That's how they frame the problem. But in the process, they leave out these broader dynamics that we've been talking about. I wonder sometimes, this is a side point, but I wonder sometimes how much of our discourse around race is conditioned by the fact that, that poor Black people are visible to, to those in power. They're in the cities, right? They're in the cities where the affluent, the elite are, and poor white people are not. There, there's, there's lots of them out there. I mean, numerically, there's more of them out there than there are black people, but they're out in the country where it's like- Scattered across, yeah. You know, where, where, the, where the elites don't see them. And so our conception of what it means to be poor, what it means to experience harassment by the police, right? We don't see the way that some like Appalachian cracker is harassed by the police- right. Wherever and it's probably very, it probably looks very similar. Which is not to, which is not to pretend that there isn't a rape of dimension to these things and it doesn't play out differently. But we just don't, we don't necessarily see in the same way the sort of concentrations of white poverty that conditions a lot of our understanding right. of what poverty looks like and what black life looks like. I guess a question I have for you is because I, I felt like this was a tension in your book, which is what to do about policing, right? So, mm. so on the one hand. You want to talk about, I think, things that overlap with or parallel to what some of the Black Lives Matters protesters talked about, which is getting to the root cause and providing more money in ways that erodes poverty and criminality at the root. But at the same time, you also are like, like you just said a few minutes ago, people don't want to move to a neighborhood where there's a sense of chaos and disorder, right? Mm -hmm. Leasing is a part of our lives. And so I wasn't sure actually in the end where you came out on that. I had this narrative that I think is probably not one you would align with. I mean, my frustration was, I thought we were actually finally incrementally making a lot of progress on the carceral state. And there had been a lot of reforms and mm -hmm. this diminishment in crime for all sorts of complicated reasons that we probably will never fully know the answer to. So we were seeing this fairly dramatic drop in crime. We were seeing a sort of delayed, but sort of ultimately corresponding drop in incarceration. We were seeing reforms, at least in some police department. And I guess for me, mm -hmm. being the liberal that I am, it felt like we were on the right trajectory. And my mm -hmm. fear to this day about Black Lives Matter and abolish the police and defund the police is that it sort of knocked us back 15 or 20 years and the crime's going to go up and we're going to get the law and order backlash. And it's going to be another generation before we're back. There's a couple of things that I want to respond to. I mean, I'm not a pro-carceral apparatus, right? I mean, we need to not only shrink the size of, of police, but undo the damage done by the war on drugs, right? The, you know, yeah. people's lives were ruined. I mean, as much as we can undo some of that damage. So I'm all for some of the changes that are taking place in certain states, whether it's getting rid of money bail, developing nonviolent units to respond to like mental health crises, figuring out ways to treat the current opioid crises, 
and ways that are more public health oriented and not punitive. It's just in practical terms. Right? I just think that all of those things can and, and should be done. But I think where where my argument probably trips people up is in the end, you know, when we're going to try to talk about police as a type of worker. I've been accused of being pro-police, right, by even broaching that subject matter or by suggesting the notion of abolishing the police, though great as a slogan, doesn't really have any precedent in the kinds of societies yeah. that we, we would want to be a part of, right? That actually, if we're going to have a society where it's very large, it's complex, and there's also a rule of law with courts, some use of state force is necessary, right? What, what form that takes can be much more democratic, can be much different from what we have in the current moment. But I don't really foresee the possibility of us being in a place where that doesn't exist at all, right? And there's plenty of countries that are less violent, certainly less violent towards civilians, but they still have police forces, right? And, and they may even have more effective police forces that close cases and <laughs> make sure that, that when somebody does something bad that they actually are, are uh, brought to justice for not it. That, so, not that Louisiana policing. That, that right. <laughs> All the wrong people are in jail, right? <laughs> yeah, so I just think like among certain elements of the, the abolitionist crowd, certainly some of my, even my friends and people who I argue with these things, argue about these things with, who think that we can have a society based on a rule of law, right? With courts mm-hmm. and other procedures but have that without police. I just think it's kind of naive, right? I mean, I think that's the nature of, of state power, right? It's the legitimate use of, of force. And at some point that needs to remain intact. And the way I think about it is like this, if we are liberal or social democratic and we imagine a society that's more just than the one that we have right now, we still have to have a means of securing that form of social justice, right? And the examples I give in the book which helps some people, right, is to think about the process of reconstruction after the Civil War, right? I mean, that was only possible through massive occupation of the Deep South with federal troops. The moment that they're removed, that experiment in racial democracy is is pretty much over, even though it limps along for a few more years. And the same is true in the Deep South after the Brown decision, right? We need, at certain moments, the federal government to step in to to compel Southern That's right. It's like those, right? you, like in Little Rock, right? It's like those famous scenes of the mm-hmm. rock of like the kids walking into school. You National know. Guard escorts, yeah. Yeah. I guess one of the thoughts I had, and I've done some reporting on policing and criminal justice is after dealing with the police and sort of interviewing them and talking to them, I came away with a conviction that... They wielded an enormous amount of power, and in some basic sense, they were a bunch of big babies. Right. <laughs> but they felt under siege all the time. They felt like right. they hated them. They had a lot of complaints. They whined a lot. Uh, apologies to my one listener who's, who's a police officer. They were a bunch of big babies, but if you take a bunch of big babies with an enormous amount of power, the answer is not to be dismissive of how they see things. The answer is that requires political skill of the mm-hmm. highest and theorizing of the highest order to think about how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. If you just be, because the power they have among others is to just withdraw. And there are like, unfortunately, like there are 
there are communities in this country where if you withdraw the arm of the state, what you have is just a kind of disorder that's to no one's advantage. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, they, and the police will wield that power like the big babies that are, right. frankly. And I think, and then just when you think about the realm of political possibilities, when people, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever, are dealing with that level of disorder, ultimately what they're going to reach for is more is more police, is more policing, is mm-hmm. more order. Like you talk about, a lot of the increase in policing was the result of advocacy and lobbying from Black activists and elected officials who were dealing mm-hmm. with that those levels of crime and disorder. And so I don't know what the answer is either, but I guess my conviction was that you had to, to put the work of eroding the causes of criminality before the work of not abolishing the police, but maybe diminishing the police or something like that, that, that mm-hmm. some level of order was the precondition for doing that other work. But where are you, how do you deal with the police? I, it just seems like a impossible problem in a way. Yeah, I mean, I just think we can fight on, on multiple fronts, right? I mean, the good thing about Black Lives Matter is giving traction to a lot of reform at the state level. And so I'm glad some of those things are rolling through. Of course, they, in, in most cases, they haven't really reduced levels of, of uh, fatal conflicts with civilians, right? Those rates have remained pretty much the same, but there is some decarceration that's happening. And so I think we got to fight that. But I, but I do feel that the underlying problem that police are primarily charged with managing the desperately poor and dispossessed in the country, we got to deal with that as, as a problem, right? It's unacceptable, man. I just spent a year in LA and the levels of, of unhoused people, right, in, in Los Angeles and I try to tell people, I got family in Louisiana, I was telling them about it. And they're like, well, we have a lot of homeless people here too. And I was like, nah, it's not, it's not on the same scale as like Los Angeles County, right? Yeah. But it's just, it's unbelievable. And, and, and there it's very stark because on the one hand, you're driving around and there's uh, multi-million dollar homes yeah, scattered right. across the hills, right? San Gabriel Mountains, wherever, wherever you are, Verdugo Mountains. And that's pretty spectacular. And then there's also these spectacular levels of, of poverty, right? Where you've got people walking the streets, no shoes on. I mean, things that, as I mentioned about going to Ghana in 1995, those were scenes I had I witnessed in Ghana, right? Of people who are like desperately poor in wheelchairs on the roadside because there's no social safety net. And here we are in the United States, 2023, and this has become normalized in most American cities that to hit an intersection and to have multiple people panhandling on pretty much every every corner, it's something we've come to live with. And I think that's deeply unacceptable and, and something that we have to rectify. So I'm much more, I'm much more on board with, with that as being the forefront of our battle. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's a quote from Allen Ginsberg, the, the beat generation poet. He was at a conference in 67. In London, this was like the Dialectics of Liberation Conference. So Stokely Carmichael was there, all sorts of other folks. Okay. And Versal Books has put out like a, a book on the proceedings, published the proceedings. Yep. But there's, a, there's also an LP vinyl set that came out back then. So I was able to snag one of those. Uh-huh. And on one of those, one of those, Allen Ginsberg is talking about the police. And he says, and he's saying this to like Stokely Carmichael, there's all sorts of really raucous people in the, in the audience who are like shouting him down. And it says, you know what, the police, the police are just the blind, right? He's like, the police are, they're like the cape of the matador, right? That just throws the bull off, right? The bull's chasing behind the cape. 
Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, they, they take our eyes off of the matador, right? <laughs> they take our eyes off of the system that's producing high levels of in- inequality and immiseration for most of us. And so I, I, f- I feel like that idea still stands or that, that sentiment still stands in, in our own times, right? The police matter. And I don't want dis- to discount the real suffering that they inflict. But they also are, are a component of the sport of society, right? They, they, they fulfill a particular historical function. And I think we could do a lot to try to reduce the poverty and dispossession that they help to manage, right? In the absence of a real welfare state and benevolent social policy that this country should have. Maybe this is a good place to end on this, because I think where I ended up fixing towards the end of your book was on some of your discussions of uh, the big New Deal style public works projects. And I think in my mind, at least, or you may have drawn this distinction explicitly, there was there was a kind of distinction between kind of ameliorative welfare state policies, whether it's free lunch or food stamps or mm-hmm. Medicaid or something like that. Services for people who are desperately poor that make them slightly less desperately poor, but doesn't change the sort of fundamental, their sort of fundamental material conditions versus state-funded projects that both provide real dignified work for people, but then also the work that they're doing is itself work that changes the nature of the whether the, the, the places that they are. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's funny for me to say I don't have a framework for that. I mean, I have a framework in the sense of like the New Deal, but I don't have a kind of contemporary policy reference point for what that even would look like. So am I right that that's kind of at the center of what your vision is? Mm-hmm. And if if so, like, who's talking about that? Like, I don't know. But you know nobody. I, <laughs> and in a sense, like, I mean, we're, we're all in a sense talking about kind of rival utopian solutions in a way, whether it's abolishing the police or reviving a New Deal style grand public works projects or whatever. These are all, if not, if not utopian, they're, they are profoundly unrealistic in the very short term. Is that where your brain ends up landing when you're thinking about what I think you talk about as the surplus, the surplus population, the desperately poor, it's it's the desperately poor, it's the people- Chronically unemployed. Chronically unemployed. Sometimes it's a homeless person. I assume sometimes it's a 23-year-old who's basically sitting in his mom's basement playing video most of the time, kind of high. Maybe a, case, right. a little bit of work or dealing a little bit of drugs or, you know, whatever. It's a range of people, but it's, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. You know, with the public works idea, I mean, I felt like it's not truly utopian. Like, I feel like on, on some level, the reason why I preached as a municipal level program is because I thought that there's certain places in the country where it might stand a chance of, of passage, right? Like, I could see certain cities on the coast where this kind of thing could happen at the county level. Of course, there are many parts of the country where it's a non-starter. Right. Yeah, I can't right, really right. This is much of a non-starter as reparations, right? In some parts of the country. But right. right. That was the one but, I was thinking of. The, the other utopian scheme, right? Reparations. <laughs> yeah. Well, in places like Chicago, which is why I seize on that as an example, you know, where there is a population here that's that's sympathetic, right? And warm to the ideas of redistributive politics. And I don't think we're there yet, clearly, right? I mean, even watching this, this first uh, few months of this new mayor, but the conditions could change. It could be ripe for that sort of, of intervention. And then little things that have happened. So going back to the Los Angeles example, right? And there's not a whole lot of examples of public works in the country. I and mean, I think public works has killed 
uh, during the post-war years here, right? It's not resumed after World War II. I mean, a lot of those people in the, in the Civilian Conservation Corps are going to the military, so that becomes their public works. And then after World War II, whenever we engage in big, you know, uh, civic projects, we do so through federal funding and private contracting, right? And so yep. we shift to the model that we have now. So this would be a reversal, which would probably face some stiff opposition from legions of private contractors and building trades people who might stand to lose if those changes were enacted. But there's some places, right? So in, in LA, they, they unveiled while I was there a uh, transit ambassadors program where, you know, like a lot of places, public transit has taken a, a, a hit yep. since COVID. Riderships are down. Crime is up, you know, in, a lot, in many places. And Again, that perception of of safety, right? Many people are not going to get on the train. I was talking to a friend of mine last week who was a faithful rider up until COVID, and she told me she's not riding. She's just too much of a hassle. She feels unsafe. So in, in LA, they actually started this transit ambassadors program. I think they only hired like maybe 200 people who would go out and monitor the platforms. They would be available in case there were medical emergencies to coordinate with EMTs or whoever else was necessary. So it was also this idea of having unarmed presence on the trains that might be able to deal with various issues that arise in the course yep. of a day. And so why not? Why not do something like that on a grander scale? In a place like Chicago, we could use it because they removed police from Chicago trains, I think, in the 90s, right? So there's, there hasn't been any police presence or transit presence, and maybe that's a good thing in some scenarios, but there's definitely moments when, you know, being on public transit here in the city is probably not the best place for certain people, right? People who are vulnerable, right? It's probably not the best thing, situation for them to be in. So this is like one potential idea, right? Something that, that's been rolled out in LA, but it can work in other places. And, and again, it's a way to put people in jobs and provide some income. I mean, that's important. But I think there's also, within most cities, when you think about these populations that are the guy in his mom's basement, the person who is unemployed and maybe living on the streets or engaged in, in illegal activity, there's a tremendous amount of creativity we can unleash in cities yeah. where people are not just working dead-end jobs, but can be really involved in remaking the communities that they live in uh, and, and, and refashioning them in ways that we're not going to get from the downtown development uh, regime that's in place, right? So the creating value in cities that goes beyond uh, markets and exchange value. So that's, that is kind of utopian, but I think it's within reach. It's a practical utopia. If you I think, well, I think what's, <laughs> what's you know, it's like agreeing with you, but what's depressing to me is I can imagine an alternative, a parallel universe where we had all the political energy of the last eight or nine years, but instead of being pointed in the direction it was in, which to me seemed mostly counterproductive or not, not pointed at the right target, it was pointed at that kind of target, right? It was pointed at creativity around those kinds of solutions. And also, you, we didn't talk about this, but also maybe more sort of unwinding of the drug war in certain ways, mm -hmm. where I think like it could have made an extraordinary difference. I mean, that's that's what I feel like. Like mm -hmm. if the conditions were such, if the, the political world was such, the intellectual world was such that when all of this energy kind of surged forward as periodically it does in not just American history, but whatever, in history, right? There are moments mm -hmm 
when when there's more possibility and there's more political popular mobilization. And what direction it points in depends on kind of who's in place and what they believe. And mm-hmm. and I, you know, what if Sanders had won in 2016? I agree with you that it's not utopian in the sense to imagine on a smaller scale all sorts of experiments like that happening. I think what's sad to me is the place the places where that creativity would be coming from are the ones that to me seem like they're often pointed in the wrong direction. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> requires an entire different no, another I conversation. Say, I, was, <laughs> I was trying to think, well, I've taken up too much of your time already, but Cedric, no, this, no. this was great. I really appreciate it. I like your book. I'm going to try and turn this around relatively quickly. It's not super topical. And I, I, I just want to note that I did successfully resist the temptation to detour onto Ibram Kendi and his <laughs> present. I can come back, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll come back for that one. For sure. All right. Well, have a good one. I really appreciate it. I'll let you know. All right. Thanks a lot, man. All right. All right. Take care. Appreciate you. You too. This was an episode of Eminent Americans, the podcast. If you like the podcast, subscribe to it uh, and subscribe to the newsletter of the same name, Eminent Americans, the newsletter. Recommend it to your friends. Rate it on the platform on which you listen to it. Beam good vibes about it out into the universe. Thank you to my producer, Nick Worthen, and thank you to you, my listeners. This is a labor of love for me, and I do genuinely appreciate your attention, particularly if you've gotten all the way here to the end of all things. Feel free to email me with questions, thoughts, observations, even diatribes at djops at gmail.com. That's D as in Daniel, J as in James, ops as in ops or Oppenheimer at gmail.com. Have a great day. Thank you.